Hello, I am Randy Andrews, and today Erica and I will discuss Big Trouble in Little China. We'll talk about the cast, the background, the technical aspects, the obscure game that exists, as well as the two comic, actually three comics, that spawned out of the actual film. And of course, the unique score by John Carpenter. It's all today on Soundtrack Alley. to Soundtrack Alley. Erica, it's great to have you on the show. What was your first impression of Big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've only seen the movie once before, and I had a friend in college who was obsessed with it, uh, so that was the first time that I saw it, and I thought that it was a very silly, cheesy, campy 80s movie was pretty much what my thoughts the first time I saw it. Uh, I did enjoy it a little bit more this time, uh, just kind of, you know, being a little bit older and kind of looking back on it. Um, but yeah, it, it's lots of fun, um, and that was actually something that Kurt Russell, I've heard him say before, is that he did it. He just wanted people to have fun. He wanted them to walk out of the theater smiling, and I definitely uh, enjoyed the movie and was smiling by the end of it, so mission accomplished. Nice. You said that your friend was obsessed with Big Trouble in Little China. Now, did you, did it grow on you? Uh, I would say it did a little bit. Uh, I definitely enjoyed it when I saw it. Um, uh, yeah, it was just, and she's also a very silly person, so I think I probably didn't take it very seriously the first time I saw it. So just kind of looking at it, uh, you know, through different eyes, um, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit more the second time through. Cool, cool. That's great. Yeah, this has been one of my favorite 80s classic movies because I always enjoy a good Kurt Russell movie, and uh, this had some really fun elements to it, and I enjoyed just... I just had a ball with it. It just... You just let let it wash over you and just enjoy the ride. Because <laughs> it was just a fun movie. And, like, one of the things that I think about is, like, even in the DVD commentary, Kurt Russell... He was kind of afraid that if he starred in the movie, it would flop. But um, when he asked John Carpenter about it, John Carpenter told him that it didn't matter. He just, he still wanted to make a movie with him, which was pretty cool. And yet, it's interesting because he had already made a movie with him with Escape from New York. So that was kind of unusual. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think they're up to, what, five movies together at this point? So, yeah, they definitely enjoy working together. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, one of the things I found unusual is that, like, in one of the scenes in the movie, Kurt Russell, he looked really, really sweaty. Well, I guess he had been dealing with 
battling a flu and it was just after the brothel scene so his so the sweat on his body was real and he was having a real fever because of the flu and so it was a real challenge for him to work on the set so i found that interesting too um and then like some of the other people that were in the film like uh victor wong and carter wong um those were like not super familiar actors but the older guy um he was like the tourist driver you know and he had actually been in the movie tremors that was a favorite of mine oh yeah i watched that all the time <laughs> so yeah that's you know that's where i remembered him seeing him and i was like oh hey he's in this movie too so that was so much fun and uh and even victor wong had made it to where jack burton would be more heroic and uh he was like you leave jack burton alone <laughs> so that was just one of those fun things i loved about the movie and even the fact that john carpenter even though a lot of his movies seemed very cheesy but um when they were doing the audio commentary there was a screen test that was overwhelmingly positive and so when 20th century fox put on a uh, little to promote the movie it ended up being kind of a bomb but yet it earned this cult status to where it boosted the ratings and like video sales and now it's sought after by many people to find it and it's even hard to rent from the library so <laughs> i mean that's one thing i found it's actually hard to rent <laughs> so once it went out on vhs uh, i believe uh they sent out a bunch of like posters and other like little memorabilia to a lot of the video stores um, and people saw a lot of that stuff lying around, and that kind of helped the video sales. So, yeah, it's just kind of one of those movies that exploded once it got onto VHS, uh, because, yeah, the production company just did not know how to promote it before it came out, and one of the reasons that led to it being such a big disappointment at the box office. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, and then, let's see, uh, it's interesting that... Jackie Chan was John Carpenter's first choice to play Wang Chi, but the producer, which was Lawrence Gordon, uh, he was highly against it because he didn't think that Chan's English was very good. So uh, they used um, Dennis Dunn to be cast instead. So I found that unique. And... I like your choice that, you know, you had said that uh, Kurt Russell and John Carpenter had worked together on five different films, and I didn't know he was in a movie called Elvis, so that was unique. Yeah, it's uh, Kurt Russell is a well-known, just like diehard Elvis fan, so I, I don't, I've not actually seen the movie, but I've seen clips from it, and he's, uh, I've heard him talk in interviews about how much he's obsessed with Elvis, so... When I found that the two of them had done a movie together, I was not surprised in the least. 
Yeah, and another movie that I've never seen is The Thing. And so that's another movie that they did together. So You haven't seen The Thing? Not yet. Oh my gosh. I have it. It's it's good. It is very good. It's good. Well, it's on my list, so... <laughs> yeah, it's slow moving compared to Big Trouble. Oh, that's it's okay. Slow moving. It's okay. it's creepy and you know I'm not going to give anything away because you haven't seen it, but it is yeah. it is high on the classic meter as okay. far as like horror movies go. It's very very good. Cool. All right. Well, also the studio felt that Kurt Russell was an up and coming star, and some may not realize that he was back. He was starring in Disney movies when he was a young person. I mean, he was in The Computer That Wore Tennis Shoes, and he was in um, some one of the chimp movies. I can't remember what it was called, but it was a Disney movie, and he was really young in that movie. And this one is far different from that, but... You know, you can you can see that that boyish smile that uh, Kurt Russell always has maintained throughout his career, and even up until now, with doing Guardians of the Galaxy too, you see that boyish smile that he has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dimples and the blue eyes. Yeah, he's had that his whole life, and uh, he he gets uh, he get goes a long ways with just the dimples and the smile. Even if he wasn't talented, but he is amazingly talented, so it's just kind of icing on the cake. Yeah, definitely. And I thought it was interesting that Kurt Russell based Jack Burton on John Wayne. And in Escape from New York, of course, he based Snake Plissken on Clint Eastwood. And if people want to go back and listen to my Escape from New York episode, they can. And learn more about that movie. Um, also, Jeff Bridges was considered to be the role of Jack Burton. I think that would have been a very different role <laughs> role for Jeff Bridges. Um, and, you know, just different things that stand out to me are like the, um, the truck driven by Jack. I mean, I wouldn't think that, that Kurt Russell would know how to drive a truck that you know, that well. So they may have had to have a stunt driver to actually drive that truck. So I found that unique. So any other thoughts on just the casting in this film? Like uh, Kim Cattrall? Uh, Yeah, I thought she did a good job. Um, She kind of wanted to do it because it wasn't sort of a stereotypical 80s uh, woman's role, just sort of, you know, running around and screaming like this character... Um, she was very smart. She was very tenacious. She was a lawyer, so she was always chasing down uh, someone she's trying to protect or some bad guy she's trying to take down. So, uh, yeah, I thought she chose it for a good reason, and I thought she did a pretty good job with it. Um, and it was really nice to see, like, a full cast of, you know, Asian-American actors uh, getting roles that weren't, like, just, like, seriously stereotypical. So it was kind of nice to see, you know, their their beliefs and their religion and their culture was respected. Um, and anytime they had to stop and explain something, they would just kind of explain it and be like, well, that's, you know, that's our culture. That's just the way it is. Uh, and I thought, you know, oh, other than the little 80s cheesiness that kind of came in here and there, other than that, I thought they did a pretty good job of kind of, you know, respecting 
a lot of the source material that they were uh, drawn from. Oh yeah, definitely. I I thought they did a really excellent job with that. And one of the one of the things that stands out to me is when we look at, into the background on the film and and seeing how um, the certain like villains that were in the movie, like the different um, so-called quote unquote gods that were in it. Um, there was the god of uh, thunder, which was Raiden. And then I was like, hey, Mortal Kombat. <laughs> and uh, and then there were two other ones, and uh, I thought it was unique how they like separated the different characters and they would have these different powers. So that was kind of fun. Um, I thought, see, we won't, like at the end of our episode, we won't be playing the actual song sung by the Coupe de Villes uh, for uh, Big Trouble in Little China, but um, the band was formed by John Carpenter, Nick Castle, and Tommy Lee Wallace. And the one thing that stands out to me is Nick Castle was one of those directors that directed many films that um, uh, Craig Saffin worked on the score for so neat little connection there so um and then also the characters on the front of egg shen's bus say uncle eggs tourist tours guarantee a good time and so he must have wanted to make sure that they would have like an action-packed adventure when doing their tourism <laughs> Um, and then also, John Carpenter envisioned that the film would be like this traditional scenario in action films um, with a Caucasian protagonist. And with Jack Burton, despite his bravado, he was constantly portrayed kind of bumbling and he didn't quite get things right. And when he would fight, it wasn't always on cue, <laughs> but it was believable. It wasn't to where he was some, you know, all-American fighter or something. He was this kind of an average Joe, and he just had some uh, lucky hits, I guess. <laughs> yeah, as you said, the average Joe who was kind of put into an unusual situation and uh, who thinks that he's going to suddenly turn into the action hero, uh, yet he needs to be saved in pretty much every scene. <laughs> so, yeah, Carpenter definitely went out of his way to kind of uh, uh, play off that, you know, who's the hero and who's the sidekick role in the movie. Yeah, I, I really like that, though, because um, you don't get your typical, like, hero and sidekick role. I, I just, I love that. And then um, I liked how you know how you had brought out earlier that Kim Cattrall was a lawyer in, in the film and she was going ahead and you know getting getting with these uh, chasing after a story or chasing after someone to protect them or something but she was kind of a, a forward um, strong female role and in that time period sometimes we didn't get those strong female roles and she i thought she did a brilliant job at just 
you know, putting her foot forward and, you know, going into a situation that she knew was dangerous and possibly deadly. And, uh, and yet with her, she, she put herself in that, in that, uh, position. And then also like, you know how you, you could see that they had green eyes in the film with Kim Cattrall and, uh, Susie Pei, uh, in real life, they only have brown eyes. And so they were definitely wearing contacts for the movie. And you can kind of see it in, I guess, the Blu-ray version of the movie. So I thought that was interesting. Um, oh, and okay. So <laughs> in one of the scenes, when they do the wedding scene, when in front of the giant, you know, the giant statue and uh, you have um, James James Hong, and <laughs> and then you have Kim Cattrall and Susie Pei. Well, James Hong actually did jab uh, Susie Pei too hard because she flinched um, when he did so, and he didn't intend to do it, but it just happened. So with that giant needle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's like, oh my goodness, that's so large. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, um, and then different things on how even John Carpenter learned that even the Golden Child, the movie, uh, was kind of having these similar themes. So he remarked that, he, he said in an interview, how many adventure pictures dealing with Chinese mysticism have been released by major studios in the past 20 years. And so for two of them to come along at the exact same time is more than a mere coincidence. And so to beat the rival production, uh, Big Trouble went into production in October 1985, so it could be released in 86. And then The Golden Child was released, uh, or it had been in production in 86, five months before and then it had a Christmas release so they were like neck and neck for determining which one was actually going to get released first and I found that interesting too um, and then uh, so there was some other stuff that was parody because like did you ever watch the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles TV show? The cartoon, I watched it all the time when I was a little kid, yeah. Alright, so they did a parody of it um, with a Chinatown ghost story. And they even had James Hong uh, come in to provide the voice for a carbon copy version of Lo Pan named Ho Chen. So, <laughs> and James Hong, he was great. He's He's such a great character actor he's been in so many uh, films and having so many villain roles and then he was even in some tv series mm -hmm. like um uh what do you call it um oh nash bridges he was in nash bridges a few times so that was kind of one of those fun little things that he had put in there yeah, and it definitely seemed like he had a good job playing Lil Pan. Um, so it's uh, he seemed like yeah he he had fun doing it. He had fun with the cast. He had fun with the character. Um, yeah, it was just kind of something that uh, he got to really play a lot of different 
characters like within that one character because he played him as the old kind of the crotchety old man in the wheelchair and then he played him uh you know as you know the almost you know sorcerer like powers and falling in love in love with one of the girls and then yet being so devious and wanting to kill anybody he needs to to you know get a body back so yeah i mean he really just got to do all kinds of different things with that one character yeah i i really like that um and then when Jack and Wang are almost run over by the Lords of Death, <laughs> John Carpenter shot the scene backwards and the actors performing in reverse. And so this was done not to confuse the actors, but for safety reasons. And the whole set, uh, that whole set with the mouth coming down the steps of the escalator, it was really dangerous for that scene. And James Hong had revealed it was a very narrow escalator, and he was on lifts. Uh, and he said it was like 12-inch lifts. And all of a sudden, John had said, we don't have time. We've got to do do it right away. And so uh, they tried getting a stuntman, but James Hong ended up doing the scene anyway. And it looked like he was really fierce, but he was actually trembling in the scene. So some of those neat little background facts it's like wow i never knew that actually happened and they were in actual danger <laughs> sometimes they took some risk that they probably shouldn't have but sometimes to get the right um right screenshot or right uh action shot you know that sometimes they just had to go with it and just say all right this is what we're doing so um what do you think of like bringing in the studio had brought in wd wd richer um do you know anything about his career or anything that he had had done before or? um and, and for screenwriting he's got a full long list of movies that he's been a writer of um and a lot of those are you know known movies that everybody would know um but the only at that time, the only movie he had ever directed was uh, Buckaroo Banzai, which he had done. He had literally just finished Buckaroo Banzai um, when the producers went to him with the original script um, for Big Trouble in Little China. And they said that they hated the script and they asked him to do like a complete rewrite of it. Um, so at one point, he actually said, hey, do you mind? Could we make this like a Buckarai Banzai part two? Because they were originally, they were intending on doing that. Yeah, um, yeah, the, producers, the producers very quickly said, no, 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 don't do that. And he said, okay. And he deleted <laughs> almost the entire script. Um, he kept the Lopan character, and that was pretty much it. He, he got rid of everything else and literally just, like, rewrote the entire script wow. um, from almost nothing. Uh, so, yeah, he was, he was very well known as, like, a script doctor. Someone, if you're having problems with the script, you give it to him, and he's the one who goes through and, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, you should try this sort of thing. So from what I know of him, that's why they gave him the script, um, and he's kind of the one who changed the whole thing around and. It, that's why it came out the way it came out. <laughs> well, I think he did a pretty good job with it, you know, um, changing it. Especially since it was a Western the first time it was written. Really? <laughs> yeah, it was It was set in the 1880s, uh, and it was supposed to be a Western the very first time through. And uh, uh, Jack's character... Um, uh, was in. I don't think it. I don't think it specified what city he was in, but he was uh, going into like the Chinatown part of an old west city, mm -hmm. and that's where the whole movie took place. 
yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that at all. <laughs> so those are those are some things that you know you you don't quite think about it. And but I was I was really impressed at how W. G. Richer just was able to change everything. And uh, John Carpenter was you know pretty much okay with that because um, later on. He had writing credits for some other things, and so you know, John Carpenter would have been you know pretty okay with stuff like that. Um, okay, did you know that there is currently being developed a remake of this movie? There have been rumors for about the last year or two, with I believe Dwayne Johnson doing it. Yeah. But it, they've they've remained rumors for a long time, so it's really really hard to know when the moment. Okay, now it's going to be a movie. Like when that green light happens, it it, it could go on for fifteen years and never happen, or oh, yeah. we could get an announcement next week. So <laughs> yes, yes, there's been rumors, but until it's actually confirmed, it's unfortunately just rumors. Yeah, exactly. You're right. You're so right. Um, okay, so. Another area I want to talk about uh, is in regard to the comics as well as the actual board game. Now, if you look up on the internet for Big Trouble in Little China, the board game, you have like character cards, you have little figurines that go on this giant board, and it's like really super detailed, and they have like hanging lanterns and you know you can walk through the the chinatown and get from one destination to another and you have various like even villain cards and you have hero cards and even villain characters like little figurines and then hero figurines so i thought it was really cool the whole premise of it was where they had they had said there's a secret world where ancient evil we use a modern mystery they call it little china and it's funny because they say it's where big trouble was waiting for jack burton and friends as they uncover this ancient diabolical plot and the whole thing with it is they have to you know muster up their courage and survive against these hordes of baddies and then face off to showdown with the the low pan and it was just really neat because they were able to take up to like three or more players to experience this game and they just they had so many elements to that one game and i think now it's like an 80 dollar game to even uh be able to get it and so, I mean, that's kind of cool because, you know, cult classic movie gets turned into a a board game and it's super collectible and it's just really neat to look at. If you ever get a chance, you'll have to take a look at that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a few friends who play board games, so I'm going to check and see if they've heard about that because, uh, yeah, big, huge, long, epic adventure board games. For people who are really into gaming, like that sort of thing is like what that's the holy grail for them. Like that is always what they're looking for. So yeah, I knew there was a game out there, but I didn't realize it was so detailed. Yeah, yeah. And then also they did two well, they did 
two comic book sequels for the movie. They did the Big Trouble in Little China comic book, and it was like almost, I think it was about 12 issues, 12 or more issues. Had to be more than 12. Um, but they did it to where, um, okay, so the basic premise was that Jack Burton finds a stowaway demon hiding in on his rig, but that soon becomes the least of his troubles, and he helps, he's helped with his best friend Wang to save his fiance from the clutches of uh, Lopan, but now the wedding has been invaded by more evil forces with one thing on their minds, revenge against Jack Burton. And so John Carpenter returns with Eric, co-writer Eric Powell, who wrote The Goon, and then artist Brian Chirilla, um, they continue these adventures of Jack Burton that take place moments after the movie actually takes place. So that's kind of cool. And then they went on, and it's still actually going on. It's called Old Man Jack, and it takes place several years after Big Trouble in Little China, and the year's 2020, and uh, this guy named Ching Dai is sick of relying on screw-ups like Lo Pan, and so he's broken the barriers between Earth and infinite hells and declares himself ruler over all, and so 60-year-old Jack is alone in this tiny corner of Florida with only his broken radio to talk to, until one day it manages to pick up a message and someone is out there in the hellscape and they know a way to stop Cheng Dai. And I think it's just a blast to have those uh, continuing stories of this one character that didn't think that he would ever be a hero. <laughs> yeah, sometimes the, the goofy trying to be a hero person is actually more interesting than people who are heroes. So yeah, I could definitely see why why Carpenter would like to continue writing them and why audiences are continuing to like the character of Jack uh, and want to see what kind of, you know, crazy situations he gets himself into. Oh yeah, definitely. And then also, one other premise that actually has happened is the big trouble in Little China slash Escape from New York crossover. And they had Jack Burton transported to the dystopian future of Escape from New York, where Snake Plissken attempts to hunt Jack down, as Snake believes he's someone trying to steal uh, his identity. Go figure, they're the same guy. Uh, and the two eventually meet up, attempt to discover what's caused Jack to hop between worlds. So I just, I really found all three of these premises to be really fun. And I looked them up on Amazon. They're really easy to get for anyone out there looking for some new material uh, for Big Trouble in Little China. What do you think of these, these projects, Erica? Uh, especially that third one sounds like a very funny idea. Um, <laughs> and the, the one question I have is, I could see Snake catching Jack in like 30 seconds. So my <laughs> question is, uh, how in the world, what kind of bumbling does Jack do to keep himself away from Snake long enough for the two of them to chat and like work out whatever it is that they need to talk about? So, oh. But yeah, I think that's very funny. 
Agreed. <laughs> so so now let's let's start talking a little bit about the uh, score for the film. Of course, John Carpenter actually scored the film, which is great. He's done so many of his own scoring for a lot of his movies, and um, he he's done so much with like he did Halloween, he did uh, Big uh, Big Trouble, he did Escape from New York. He's done he I don't know if he did the thing. Did he do the thing? I'm not sure. That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that. Hmm. Hang on. Let me see. Because I'm going to look. Oh, wait. Nope, that's not it. Alright. So we're looking up the thing. Let's see here. Alright. So, bringing that up now. Yeah, this is great. Great podcasting. Trying to find, searching for different uh composers or anything and then it doesn't want to bring it up wonderful well i'll have to find that later because i can't find it for some reason it didn't want to bring up anything for it so that's kind of weird because i thought i had it well i'll have to look for it later so uh but that's okay everything's okay with that all right so um one thing that I really liked is that with this being such like an action flick, um, audience audiences maybe not didn't really realize the effort that John Carpenter had done to make this synthesized style for the 1980s. And I mean, with his scores, uh, it really shows that he could do a lot, even with synthesizers and with just you know other things i mean people remember large orchestral scores and when you look at the comparison between what john carpenter did with these electronic alternatives but i really like the fact that he used like these keyboards and he used it for the majority of the score and then put in some electric guitars some bass loops um, he used like wood blocks, xylophones, kotos, and at one point, I can't remember exactly where it is in the score, but it sounds like he used a choir, but I don't think it was so. I think it was part of the synthesizers that actually was doing that. So, you know, it's one of those interesting things that like mainstream listeners, they might say, ugh. This isn't a great soundtrack, but it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of fun to it. There's a lot of uh, love for this score. And you can even find like stuff on vinyl that is the uh, John Carpenter Anthology album that has a bunch of his other score pieces to it, which is kind of cool. Um, so uh, what are your initial impressions of the score, Erica? Uh, yeah, I really like the fact that for most of the tracks, there isn't what you consider a traditional, like, melody. 
Um, like most of what he did, especially since, as you said, it's very synthesizer heavy, most of what he did is ambiance and atmosphere and sound effects. Mm-hmm. And like he and he played with all of those things. And then you've got, you know, the drumming and some guitars and all this other stuff that just kind of comes in and out. But it's very, very little has like what you would consider a traditional melody. And as far as like an 80s movie, I think it, it, it worked really well. It's so much 80s stuff, and, you know, you know, big, whether it's like, you know, hair metal or singing <laughs> or, you know, just really over-the-top melodies, and he didn't do that at all with the score. And I think it actually stands up, you know, stands the test of time a little bit better because a lot of the tracks in this, I felt, uh, could actually be in other movies. And I don't mean that like negatively, mm-hmm. but like there's, there's like a track, for example, that when it comes up, I'll mention the name, but I was hearing the track and I was thinking, wow, this could be in like any movie in the 80s because this track works so well. I could hear it like in the labyrinth or I could hear it in like Rambo. Mm-hmm. Like, like he, like he just put this music together that fit the movie, but really fit like broader 80s in general without using any of like the normal 80s tropes. Oh, and yeah. how how he accomplished that, I do not have the answer to. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I enjoyed the non-melodic atmosphere, you know, just the, the all the weird sound effects that kind of come in and out, but all work melodically, like, within uh, the music that he had put together. Yeah, that's, that's a really good way to put it. Um, so the first cues that I'm going to plan on playing is Porkchop Express, which is the main title. And then we have Abduction at Airport. And then we have The Alley War and The Storms. Now, I really love how it's synth-heavy in this score, which is great. It makes for a very impressive score that John Carpenter has this distinctive sound for his movies. And it really stands out to me. What What do you think of it? Uh, those first four tracks, um, I especially like the middle two, the abduction at airport and the alley. Um, again, it was very atmospheric, uh, lots of rhythms and beats, lots of synthesizer. Um, and it's really like setting the mood for the entire film. Like you're just getting into this film and you're hearing all this stuff that's going on, but it all like works so well, like within like the context of what you're seeing on screen. Um, and I really like the alley uh, specifically. Um, it's very noisy. There's a lot of yeah. like, there's a lot of noise and percussion and all these things happening. It's happening is very jarring and distracting. Um, and martial arts themselves uh, are quite percussive and that not just martial arts with with you know weapons of some kind but even like hand-to-hand sparring you're always hearing noises and you're hearing grunting and you know the footwork on the ground like martial arts itself is very percussive so he did a great job of mixing all these weird noises and all the stuff happening to perfectly mimic what you were seeing on screen but he wasn't making it like sound effecty. Like it wasn't, you know, uh, like a comic book pow. Like it wasn't that kind of thing. It's just all the noises were adding to what you were seeing on screen. So I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah, I I really like that too. So let's go ahead and play those cues. <laughs>
All right, so the next cues that I want to play are Friend of Yours and Escape Iron Basin, uh, Escape from Wing Kong, and Call the Police. I really like how these can give us, like I had mentioned before, kind of a fake chorus in the background and still making it believable in the movie. Um, what do you think of that? Do you think that you could almost hear a chorus in it? Especially with the last one, the Call the Police track. Uh, it, I was kind of feeling like you could put that in a film where you're like walking through a kingdom of elves. And like and like hearing like all of these voices, but not human voices. Like that's what I felt the synth was doing. Is it was kind of mimicking voices, but it's not voices. So it sort of felt like a non-human voice singing. Uh, and it just it just kind of conjures up all these weird like images in your head. Uh, and I yeah, I just thought you did a great job with that. And a couple of the earlier tracks. Uh, the friend of yours and such are very dark and serious and brooding. Um, and a few of them will just kind of like pop into this more like 80s music right in the middle. So I thought I, it just seemed like he was having a lot of fun <laughs> uh, mixing all the different sounds and doing everything he possibly could with the synthesizer. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, so um, why don't we play those?
Alright, so sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for Soundtrack Alley's theme music. Um, you can find his work at xanderscores.com. So lastly today, what we'll be playing is Into the Spirit Path, The Great Arcade, The Final Escape, and Goodbye Jack. Now, I really love the ending of this film, and it's surprising because you would think that the quote-unquote hero that we know is Jack Burton that isn't really a hero, um, he doesn't give us the satisfaction to kiss the girl at the end of the movie. Um, what do you think? I thought it was brilliant that he did not get the girl at the end. Uh, because Carpenter was subverting Jack's character the whole time. You think he's the hero, and he's not. He's sort of a, a fun, but he's sort of the bumbling fool, like, getting himself along. Uh, the other guy, you know, his friend Wing, is, you know, going after this one woman that he needs to rescue and to get rid of all these bad guys. And so he gets his girl in the end, and it comes to the end for Jack, and Jack's like, yeah, I'm out. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I thought, I, I really think... It, it would have ruined the movie, I think, yeah. if Jack had gone, oh, yeah, I'll change my ways and I'll settle down, and, yeah, you're the perfect person for me. Like, <laughs> I, I think it would, just, it would have ruined everything we had seen if Jack had done that. So I think, I think the movie was like a big growth thing for him, where it got to the end and he kind of realized, this is who I am, this is what I'm capable of, and, you know, at this point, I'm, I'm happier being off and just hanging out in my truck. So yeah. <laughs> I, I actually like the ending quite a bit. Yeah, me too. I, I really do. Um, so, Erica, where can people find you? Uh, yeah, the best place would be my website, which is ericachristie.com, E-R-I-K-A-C-H-R-I-S-C-I-E.com. And there you can find uh, the different podcasts I do, some of my videos, and all of my social media stuff on there. Cool. And you can find me mostly at SoundtrackAlley.net. And all the social networking links are going to be in the show notes. Uh, you can also send me an email at SoundtrackAlley at Yahoo.com. It's fairly empty sometimes, so please send me an email anytime. Also, you can rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts and review it. And if I see a review, I'll bring it out onto the show. And you can be internet famous. So... So Erica's site will also have a link uh, in the show notes. And so we're going to play these last cues. And until next time, happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take the time to review my podcast on iTunes or even listen to it on Podbean. With your review, it helps me get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com.